You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. You can be seated. Turn to Galatians chapter 1, if you don't mind. Galatians chapter 1. Uh, we'll pick it up in verse 11. Uh, I'd like to say thank you to uh, Brother Nick. You filling in for me last week. Uh, I did have to have some surgery on November 14th. Someone asked me uh, how the recovery is going, and I said I'm not sure because uh, I'm not sure it's uh, going all that well. Had some setbacks um, and still not back to 100%. So I appreciate your prayers and uh, the cards you've sent. That's been uh, very, very encouraging and helpful. Uh, I would ask for your prayers for me. Um, still have some challenges that I haven't worked through. And uh, just appreciate your prayers. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. <clears throat> Lord, have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel? For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then when I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ, they were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Listen to that again. Talking about Paul. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Father, we pause in this moment to just say thank you. Thank you for your goodness and grace. And thank you, Father, for your presence and power, both on the mountains and in the valleys and everywhere in between. Father, we have to confess this morning that, that your gospel is enough. It is enough to take us from being broke and undone, alienated, making us sons and daughters. Father, we admit that your word is enough. That from Genesis to Revelation, your perfect revelation, we don't need any more than what we have in the pages of your word that's perfect and pure from cover to cover. Father, we acknowledge the fact that, that while your church is made up of imperfect people, the church itself, it is enough. It's enough to fulfill the great commission that you have given us that, Father, if we're obedient to you and trust you, that, that Father, we can see lives changed. And, and, Father, the church that you've left on this planet, it's enough. Father, your grace, it's enough. 
Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. The Holy Spirit is enough. Father, we have all that we need. We have abundantly more than we've ever deserved. And Father, the fact that you are patient with us, that you love us in spite of our brokenness, that you love us even when we, when we fail, Lord, your love and your grace, it's enough. So, Father, we praise you in all of that. We thank you for all of that. We thank you, Father, that your hand touches and heals, that you hear and answer prayers, that those cries in the night, They're heard by you, and you move. You move mountains to come to the aid of your children. Father, we praise you. We love you. We exalt you. There is none greater. And so, Father, today as we walk through this text, I pray that you would give us clarity. Father, that we could see clearly what gospel we have put our faith in. There's only one. But Paul mentions another. And it's not good news, it's bad news. So, Father, I pray that we'd be able to discern the difference between those two. Have your will in your way. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I started out in ministry, accepted the calling of ministry in 2005. And um, my first full-time position was youth and children's pastor. And, uh, man, it seems like a long time ago. I had no clue what I was doing. I mean, I was, complete, I was completely, utterly clueless in what to do in ministry because I was coming out of industry, and the pastor that I was serving with, thankfully, he was a very patient man, uh, very patient man. And, and when I began to work with him and, and began to learn what ministry was all about, uh, I began to read books, and then I went back to school and was working on an undergrad degree, and I was introduced <clears throat> to a to a study that had been done. I was not familiar with this particular author at that time, but I know that in 2005 he did a study that influenced a lot of other authors that wrote during that time. So I read a lot of their books. And this guy's name was Dr. Christian Smith. He was actually at uh, Chapel Hill, UNC Chapel Hill, as a sociology professor. And he did a really big study. And what's interesting about this is he's still doing this study today, the exact, exact same of group of people that he studied then who were thir between the ages of 13 and 17. He's been following their life. He's now a professor at Harvard, I think. And he's followed their life and has been continuing to study their faith. What he did is when they were ages 13 to 17, these children or these teenagers, preteens, uh, were religious, by the way he was measuring it, and uh, had faith in something, probably at the time, they were saying Christ, because I haven't read the full study. I don't know for sure. But here is some of the things as he studied and asked them questions. These are some things that formulated their worldview. So I want you to listen to them. The first thing that this group of people said collectively was, is that there is a God out there somewhere, but he is uninvolved and unconcerned with us. So, so the idea of between these, the ages of 13 and 17, that these teenagers, these young adults, kind of all collectively agree, there were 3,000 of them, that there's a God out there, but he's not really connected to us. He's not really concerned about us. He's, he's just kind of out doing his own thing. So there's a separation between us and him. He's not really involved in our life. 
The second thing that they collectively believed in is they believed that that God who is out there wants us to be good people. And, and, if, we, and if we be good people, then one day we will be able to be with this God that we believe in, that, that, if, that if we're good enough, if we tip the scales just enough, then this God will be pleased with us. So we've got to be moral people. The third thing that they believed is that the end goal of life, that the purpose of this life was to be happy. So when they defined what is good, when they were asked what is good in the world, it always connected to what made them happy. So there was a connection between the good and what made them happy. And of course, if they weren't happy, then it wasn't good. And that's how they determined what is real and what is true and what is, well, what they followed. So they, they, were, they were in pursuit of happiness. And then the fourth thing that, that they kind of collectively believed, which flows out of these other three pretty closely, that by being good, God will one day accept me. And then when they're asked about salvation in particular, they, many of them would mention Jesus, but, but then they would immediately begin to talk about their good works. Now, this is not anything new. As a matter of fact, throughout my entire Christian walk, those times where I've shared the gospel and have conversations with people who, who are not part of a church and who are maybe far from Christ, when I would, when I would bring up the name of Jesus, they would immediately acknowledge that they, they knew who Jesus was, that, that they believed in Jesus, but then they would immediately tell me about their good works, about how good they are and the good things that they do and that they give to the poor and you know, they attend a church and the two were almost intertwined. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, well, well that's kind of what I believe. <laughs> What's wrong with that? I kind of believe the same things, that, that my life is about doing good things, and I want to be good to other people, and if I do that enough, then, then when I stand before God, God will be impressed with me and say, wow, you've done such a good job, then by all means, you have earned heaven. Come on in. I wonder how many of you here this morning believe that. And you may be saying at this moment, well, what's wrong with that? Let me tell you what's wrong with that. It's toxic. And in fact, it's a false gospel. Nothing really new under the sun. It's just packaged differently, but it's the exact same false gospel that Paul is dealing with in the church at Galatia. It just takes a little bit of a different form. But this lie has been perpetuated down through history, down through church history. There have been doctrinal disagreements. There's been all kinds of issues about a works-based salvation versus a salvation that is full and free that is based upon faith in Christ, not based upon your performance. So the tension has been back and forth all down through church history, and it is alive and well today, and it is alive and well in the local church, even, yes, the Baptist church, and even here this morning. For some of you are here this morning for the sole purpose of impressing God. So that when that day comes, that God will look at all of your good works and go, yep, you did just enough, welcome. Or, man, if you just went to church one more time, if you, if you just gave a little bit more money, you could have you got in. So you're, you're spending your life and spending your energy trying to find joy and peace. It's something that can never give it to you. You're trying to find security in a false gospel. You're trying to work your way into heaven. You're trying to impress God by your good living, all the while knowing that something is missing 
This is a toxic belief because you're depending on your works to earn salvation, and that by definition is a false gospel. Paul is dealing with the exact same thing. It's just a different group of people with a different set of things they're trying to add to the gospel. It all comes back to good works. So Paul is going to confront that in this, this first letter of the New Testament. This letter, the letter to the church at Galatia, is the earliest writing in the New Testament. Paul wrote this right around 49 A.D., very early. This is the first letter that Paul wrote. And, and notice in this letter, what is Paul doing? Paul is driving home, putting a line in the sand, planting a flag on a hill that says this is the gospel and nothing else. So in a very short period of time, between the time of Jesus' ascension and the early church, and the early church getting traction, we already have a works-based salvation that has crept into the local church already. This is why Paul is writing this letter. Notice in verse 6, Paul, uh, Nikki spoke on this last week. I just want to go back and pick up a couple of the verses here. Look at verse 6 in chapter 1. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is one, but there are some who trouble you who want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, this, this is very important. Paul is saying there's an, another gospel that's been introduced, but it's not really a gospel at all. The gospel, is bare form, is, is good news. Paul says that what's happening in the church at Galatia, what's happening in the American church today is not good news, it's bad news. It's really bad news. And that you may, have put in your, you may be putting your faith in a false gospel. You may be trying to work out a deal with God by which you are trying to do good works to impress Him, by which He's going to say, just good enough. But all the while knowing on the inside that, that God's standard of, of righteousness is absolute perfection. You, you know that. You've heard it. That, that it's absolute perfection in all areas of the law. You know that there's a deficit in your life. And you know that no matter how good you've been and no matter how good works you've done, there's always this nagging doubt down deep inside of you that, man, maybe your thought life, maybe it's the motivations of your heart could play into this. And you know as well as I do that even though while your outward works may look really, really pristine on the inside, the motivation of what your heart is thinking and what your mind is contemplating, well, it's anything less or anything less, nothing less than just absolute abhorrent. So Paul says here, I'm astonished. This church had walked away from the gospel and has accepted a lie. Look down at verse 10. He says, for I am now see he says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or God? Or am I, am I am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So what Paul says here is, is there, there's a paradox here. Uh, there, there's something you can never bring together. There, there's no way that you can please man and at the same time please God. It it doesn't work. The, the two are diametrically opposed. Paul is bringing our attention to the reality that that this man's gospel that we're going to talk about here in just a moment is the idea of pleasing other people, living by their standards that was given to you or placed upon you either through a religious system or otherwise. There's no way that you can live in that system 
and be a servant of Christ. It's one or the other, but not both. Paul's going to recount his testimony. We're going to take a look at Paul's life before. We're going to take a look at what happened in that moment when Paul was transformed. And then we're going to look at his life afterward. And in all of that, what Paul is arguing here is that what changed his life was not man's gospel. There is no way that, that, a, that a false gospel could bring about the transformation in Paul's life that we're going to read about this morning. Pick it up in verse 11. For I would have, you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. So this poses, or at least it raises in my mind, a question right off the bat. If this is a false gospel, Paul is characterizing it as man's gospel. It's something that started with mankind. Then what is that gospel? It would be very important for us to know what man's gospel is. Notice what he says. He says, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul immediately says that the, the difference between man's gospel versus the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he didn't receive it from a, a, a hierarchy of rulers and traditions and elders. No, he received it from Christ. So what is man's gospel? Let me give you some characteristics of man's gospel. We see this all through the New Testament. We see uh, uh, Paul dealing with it in his letters over and over again. So what is man's gospel? Here's man's gospel. First of all, it's based on performance. It's based on what you can do. It is centrally focused on your abilities. So why is it that the Jehovah Witnesses are knocking on your door over and over and over again? Why is it that the Mormons are canvassing your neighborhood? It's because in those two religions, they believe and have been taught that in order to be right with God, they must knock on doors. It's part of being right with God. So, folks, I can take all the religions in the world and I can put them in my two hands. In this hand, we can put Islam. We can put Buddhism. We can put Baha'i. We can put all the religions of the world they all, in essence, say exactly the same thing. There is something you must do to earn whatever God they believe in to earn his favor. For Islam, it's the five pillars of Islam. You must practice these five pillars. You must do them consistently, and you must do them throughout your life. And if you do them enough, think of it this way. All the religions in this world, they live by the scales. You, you remember the old scales in the justice system? Like if you go you look at a courthouse, there's a set of scales there. Well, these religions all live by the scales, and the idea is, is if I do more good works than I do bad works, it tips the scale just enough where God says, I will accept you. That's what they all say. And what, they find, what we find is adherents all over the world who believe that it is up to them to get from a place of lostness to a place of being accepted by whatever God they believe in. That is something that I have to do in this life. If they believe in any kind of utopia, if they believe in any kind of afterlife, to be able to cross into a favorable place in that afterlife is solely dependent upon the decisions you make right now. It's all in your lap. But then over here in this hand, we have something radical, something radically different. The God of the universe comes and lives among us, takes on flesh, lives among us, teaches us what it means to live within the kingdom of the one true God and 
And this God, Jesus Christ, he allows sinners to punish him, to convict him, and to hang him on a cross. And nobody could find anything that he had done wrong. Nothing. Even the Gentile, Pontius Pilate, says, there's, there's nothing I can find that this man has done wrong, deserving of his death, yet they crucified him. Not because of what he had done wrong, but because of what we had done wrong. Because there was a punishment that was due to come to humanity because of the sins and the rebellion that we had lived in and chose to live in. And Jesus takes that upon himself, and he, and he says, and his resurrection says clearly that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no other worth putting your faith in. All of these other religions, they have all of their dead gods and their dead prophets. There's graves all over the planet of their dead prophets who had some things to say, and they're all rotting in a grave to this day. But my king, oh no. Three days later, he resurrects, seen by 500 people. They could see the scars in his hands. He's having a meal with the disciples. He resurrects, and then he publicly ascends back to the Father. Listen, folks, Christianity is not a religion. Some of you who are in college, wait a minute. My professor said that Christianity is really, no, it's not. It's completely different than every other belief system on earth. It is a belief system that says you can have a relationship with God, not by your works, but by your faith in Jesus who fulfilled the law on your behalf. Amen. That's good news. That is awesome news. Paul says man's gospel is based on performance. Something else, another characteristic about man's gospel is it builds a hierarchy of rulers and rules. Look at Judaism. What do we have? We have this hierarchy of rulers. And you have like super ultra-religious righteous guys and then kind of semi-righteous guys. And then you have the rest of the vagabonds and people who are trying to figure it out. And this group at the top would have nothing to do with this group at the bottom. You had all of this structure and rules that you had to go through, 613 laws. Initially, it got bigger and bigger and bigger, and there was more things for you to do and more things, you, more hoops you had to jump through. And if you were poor, if you, were, if you had a, a physical ailment, if you were missing a limb, if you couldn't walk, you were completely outside the rules and the hierarchy, and therefore you were outside the grace of God. That doesn't sound like good news at all. But every system that has man at its center, every system that has works at its center does exactly the same thing. You look at all the world religions, what do you find? You find a hierarchy of rulers, people at the top who look down on people at the bottom. People at the top who don't serve the poor, who don't, who don't give to those in need, they simply take for themselves. Because it never deals with the heart, it never changes anything, it just puts you inside of a system that makes you think that everything is okay when, in fact, everything is not okay. Third characteristic of man's gospel has a foundation of pride and arrogance. Well, if we have a system of hierarchy, then obviously we have pride and arrogance built in. There are some up here that look down on others. If you remember Jesus walking with the disciples in John chapter 9, there's a, there's a man who's blind. You remember what the disciples said to Jesus? Who sinned, this man or his family? That's what they've been taught. They've been taught that this man was blind because of some sin they committed. And therefore, as a blind man, he is outside the grace of God. Couldn't go to the temple, couldn't participate. He's an outsider and perpetually an outsider. And what does Jesus do? Gives him his sight back. Another characteristic of man's gospel 
is it focuses on empty rituals. I just had a conversation with a guy just a few weeks ago who's part of another denomination. His denomination is moving in a direction that is completely in opposite of God's word, and he's wrestling with this. But then he said this. He said, I, I still go to church. I still go to my church. I don't want to leave, but I'm telling you. He said, I, go, I don't even know why I'm going. He said, we're doing all this stuff. We've got all these traditions that we follow. He says, none of it means anything to me. And then he said this. He said, everything that I see going on on the stage is not about God. It's about people. And I said to him, it's time for you to find another church. But that's what the religions of the world does. They, they build this hierarchy. They build a system of rulers. Then they, then they build these rituals, and we go through the motions. And we don't even know what they are. We don't know what they mean, and they have no connection to anything having to do with worship, not biblical worship. Paul says, this is a man's gospel. Paul says, I didn't receive that gospel. Pa Paul says, after he'd been changed on the Damascus Road, that's not the gospel I received. But the thing is, Paul did receive this false gospel. Paul lived this false gospel. He knows it inside and out because he lived it for much of his life before he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. Why are we so inclined towards this gospel, false gospel? Why, why is it why is it people find it so easily just to, to move over into that way of thinking, even within the church? I think it's because we like the idea of being in control. We like the idea of knowing where we stand. You see, if I've got a scale that I'm living by, I can, I can kind of tell how much good stuff I'm doing versus bad stuff. And not only can I tell what I'm doing, I can compare it against you. Oh, here's the important part. If I can show that I'm a little bit better than you, it's the whole idea that if a, <laughs> it's the whole idea that you know if we if I go hiking with you, like if you, if you and I go hiking, we're gonna go up in bear country, we're gonna hike, and you ask me the question, hey, what happens? What happens if a bear gets after us? My answer will be is I only have to outrun you. <laughs> I only have to be faster than you. Here's what's happening. This reason we go towards a works-based salvation is because I, ha I get in my mind that I only have to be just a little bit better than you. So I look at your life, and I look at my life, and I go, okay, I've got a little bit more good works. I went to church four times this month. You only came two. That makes me closer to God. Now, you think this is insane, but this is exactly what happens, what is happening in the Western American church. This ideology, this false gospel has crept in. It's just been repackaged, but it's the same old false gospel that somehow works is going to be enough. Uh, just, uh, I think it was last week we were having a conversation with staff. I'm not going to tell you the details, but we had someone come to the church in need of something. This person was, is part of a works-based religion mindset. Again, I won't give you the details, but um, <laughs> this person was very, very rude to Kim. This is very rude. And so, myself, Jonathan Kim, were standing upstairs talking. I love what Jonathan said. I, I didn't get your permission to share this, but welcome to Hyde Park. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so, we're standing up there, and he, and he says something very profound. He said, you know, if she believes in a works-based salvation, you would think she would have been a whole lot nicer to Kim. That makes sense, right? Because if I'm trying to tilt the scales for God to accept me, then why would I not be good 
to the person I'm talking to about this issue. You know what my answer was? Maybe she'd been good enough that day. <laughs> That's the problem with man's gospel, folks. We can laugh about that, but this is a very serious thing. Let's move on. Paul the persecutor, pick it up in verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. Notice how Paul describes his former life, the words that he uses. He says, how I persecuted the church. He persecuted the church violently, and his goal was to destroy it. We have a word for guys like Paul today. We call them terrorists. That's what he was. He says, my goal was to destroy this movement of people following Jesus. And so here's what I did. I used violence. I used persecution. I would lock people up. I would consent to their death. And at the same time, notice this, verse 14. At the same time that he is persecuting, actively going after those who put their faith in Jesus. Look at verse 14. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So here's what's happening. And the two are connected. The more he persecuted the church, the more he found favor in Judaism. The more he, the more he imprisoned people for putting their faith in Christ, the more he grew in stature, the more he consented to their death, the more he was applauded by those in his religion. You see, Paul had believed in a false gospel, a man's gospel. He thought that he was climbing the ladder. He thought that not only was he being appreciated by people, but he was impressing God, that he was going to do away with this false religion, that he was going to destroy it, that Jesus, this blasphemer who claimed to be God, I'm not only, not only did we destroy him rightfully, but everyone who follows him, we're going we're gonna to hunt him down. That was Paul's life. That's what Paul was about. Turn over to Acts 26. Paul, Paul shares his testimony in different ways, both in the book of Acts, but also in the letters. He'll, he'll allude to his past. And he, uh, in Acts chapter 26, he's standing before a leader called Agrippa. Paul's been arrested, and uh, he is going to appeal to go see Caesar. He's going to appeal to go all the way to the top, kind of like the Supreme Court. But before he does, he is making a defense before this guy named Agrippa. I want you to listen to what he says about his former life, verse 9. He said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. See, it wasn't just opposing the church, but it was opposing Jesus specifically. Paul had a real problem, or Saul had a real problem with Jesus. Verse 10. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. There is every reason to understand that not only did Paul uh, vote in favor of seeing people put to death, that he probably participated. A murder of innocent people. Now, let me ask you a question at this point. I, I want to read the rest of this, but I, I, just, I just want you to I want you to think about something for just a moment. When was Paul's Judaism going to kick in here? Remember, 
the law had a lot to say about condemning innocent people to die. The law had a lot to say about loving neighbor. The, the law had a lot to say about protecting life built within the law of Judaism. So, so what is it, what has happened here in Paul's practice of his religion where he has no problem arresting people, put him in jail, and then seeing them put to death? What's, what's happened here? We see a, a man's gospel always leads towards, well, an undermining of what the value of human life is. Paul had no problem doing this. He saw, he saw no contradiction between his religion and the practice. As a matter of fact, he saw it as protecting his religion, protecting God. He, was, he believed that he was acting in the will of God by killing innocent people. Hmm. Verse 11, and I punished them often in all the synagogues. I tried to make them blaspheme. See what Paul's doing here? The same thing they did to Jesus trying to get them to incriminate themselves so that they had a reason to bring capital punishment down upon them. Paul is as crooked as you could possibly be here. Even within the practice of his religion, even within the, the lauding of his, of his peers, he is crooked to the core. That's where a works-based salvation will take you. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He's chasing them down like animals. So apparently, his religion of Judaism, his acceptance of a false gospel, made no difference in how he loved God or loved neighbor. Now, he thought that by doing this, he's showing devotion to God. But in essence, he's working against the very God he says that he loves so that's Paul the persecutor. How could someone with a resume like Paul's end up writing two-thirds of the New Testament, traveling over 15,000 miles by foot and animal, plant over 20 churches, and be one of the most influential leaders in Christianity post Jesus' ascension? How is it we get from a guy who's killing Christians to a guy who is well, sharing the gospel and seeing people come to faith in Christ. How is it we have a guy who hates Jesus who now proclaims him as king? Well, let's read on. Verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. No matter where you look at Paul's testimonies. No matter if you look in Acts, if you look in the letters, when he alludes to what happened to him on the Damascus Road, he is consistent in what he says. He will say over and over again that it was God's work in his life, God's pursuit of him from eternity past that saved him. It was not a work that he performed. Paul would say consistently over and over and over again, the only way that he could move from persecutor to preacher was because of the grace of God and God pursuing him and calling him, even in eternity past. God says, or Paul says, that he'd been set apart. He'd been called. And it was going to require God's grace that there was no way that Paul could ever do enough works of the law to move himself from being a murderer, well, to a leader of the early church. 
How much, how, much, how much money do you have to give? How much attendance do you have to do? How much work do you have to do to move from being a murderer to a proclaimer of the gospel? What does it require? Well, Paul realized on the Damascus Road in one single moment of time that his works were not enough. In fact, on that Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9, he, he's on his way to serve more papers to continue the work he's doing. He, he, is, he is fulfilling what he thinks is the works that's going to get him in good with God. And then on that road, he is blinded with a bright light, and he realizes for the first time in his life that this Jesus whom he hates, this Jesus whom he's castigated, this Jesus whom they put on a cross is in fact King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Son of the living God. Amen. In a single moment in time, Paul on his knees, he realizes he's put his faith in the wrong gospel. I mean, think about that. His whole life upended in a single moment. His whole life. His climb up the hierarchy of Judaism, over. As a matter of fact, you need to hear what Paul says about his former life and then that moment on the Damascus Road. Turn to Philippians chapter 3, just a few pages over where you are. Philippians chapter 3, we'll pick it up in verse 4. This is an incredible, beautiful, lovely, I, I get choked up every time I read it. I cannot read Philippians 3, verses 4 and following, without it just messing me up, okay? Because I see myself here. Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So Paul, here again, talking about his life before he came to faith on the Damascus Road, before God intervened in his life, before God put him in front of Jesus, the Son of God. He says, look, if any of you have any ways to brag, in other words, this hierarchy of religion, this hierarchy of the man's gospel, well, I've done this many works, I've done this much good. Listen, if you've got some reason to boast, Paul said, I have way more. And I, I don't believe he's, he's bragging here. I don't think he's inflating what he did. I think Paul is speaking very honestly here. I think Paul was an adherent to the law. I think his life revolved around the law. I think he lived every day of his life to keep the law. So I don't, I, don't think he's, I don't think he's just inflating it for, for purposes here for the Philippian church. I think he's giving us a reasonable explanation of how he lived before the Damascus Road. He says, if anyone else has reason for confidence in the flesh, he says, I've got more. Listen to this. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day exactly the way it should have been. He says, of the people of Israel, I was of the tribe of, G, of, of Hebrew. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As of the law of Pharisees, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, Paul says he was blameless. That's an incredible statement. Paul says, when you take the law and you look at my life, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find that I'm adhering to those laws. That's powerful. I don't doubt Paul in that. I'm just taking him at his word. So Paul says, if you've got, if you, if you, listen, if you've bought into man's gospel and you've got a reason to boast, well, listen, I've got even more of a reason to boast. 
Hebrew of the Hebrews, born of the tribe of Benjamin. I've got all the credentials. I've got the resume of all resumes. People were talking about Paul. People were impressed by Paul. Paul is climbing the ladder of success. Paul's going to be a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He says, I have plenty to boast about. Notice what he says next. Verse 7, one of the biggest butts in the New Testament right here. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And listen to this, and counted it as rubbish. You see that word rubbish? Oh, goodness. It's a powerful text. That word rubbish in the Greek it refers to a pile of animal feces. It was actually kind of a coarse word in Greek language. You, it's a word you didn't want to throw around a lot. Here's, here, Paul, Paul's trying to get us to see, compared to Christ, his old life, that life that he boasted about, that life that was man-centric and, and based on his own works. He says, let me tell you what that life was about. That life was nothing more than a big pile of animal feces compared to knowing Christ. So let me ask you a question. How are you doing? Is your works exceeding the works of Paul? And even if they are, they're worthless compared to Christ. They mean nothing compared to Christ. All of your works, all of your law-keeping, all of your church attendance, all of your generous giving, if those things are not rooted in a transformed heart from Christ, you are believing in a false gospel, and it is toxic, and it will destroy you. There's been many times down through ministry where I have been in the room the hospice room, the hospital room, the intensive care unit with a person who has spent their whole life investing their life in a man's gospel. And the family has, has invited me to come and the, and the family's trying to, wanting me to talk this person into salvation, but they have spent their whole life doing good works in a Baptist church, but they never placed their faith in Jesus. Church, hear me clearly and hear me well here. Do not tune, on, tune out on me right here. Satan would love for you to, to be distracted by your phone right now. Satan would love for you to be distracted by the screen or something else, but I'm not going to allow that to happen. You pay attention to what I'm getting ready to say to you. They spent their whole life investing in a false gospel. Only to get on their deathbed. And you would think at that moment, you would think, you would think, they would recognize the error of their ways. They would recognize all that's gone wrong. And finally, maybe in that moment, put faith in Jesus. And there were some who did, but not many. I'll tell you what I found more than, more than anything else. I found bitterness and anger at God. You mean I've spent my whole life going to church and, and serving on this and doing that. And you mean now at this moment, God will not accept me. And I have to look at them and say, God will not accept you unless you repent and believe in Jesus. There were people who left this world who never did it. Bitter and angry. And they stood before God and they, they stood before that God and they said, God, look at all the good things I've done. Look at all this stuff. And God says, just like Paul, that is worthless. Because you never accepted my son. So Paul was not only the persecutor. He was Paul the pursued. 
God pursued him. For every person in this room who's been born again, God loved you, saw you, chose you in eternity past, worked out all of time and space to bring people into your path to share the gospel with you. Isn't that incredible? It's beautiful that God has that kind of love, concern, that he saw you eons before you ever existed. Paul was not changed because he met with a psychologist. Paul wasn't changed because he went through six months of counseling. Paul wasn't changed because of a flashy presentation. Paul was changed because of Christ and the gospel and the good news. He didn't receive that from man. He received it from Christ. Paul the pursued then turns into Paul the preacher. Look at this, verse 16. Oh, I'm sorry, go back to Galatians. About to jump back into Philippians there. That was not going to work. Let's go back to Galatians. It says here in verse uh, 16, it says, Was pleased to reveal his son to me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. You see, Paul wasn't just saved from, well, the wrath of God. He wasn't just, it certainly was, such was I. I was saved when I put my faith in Jesus at age 16. I was saved from the wrath of God. I was saved from eternity in hell. I was saved from the punishment that I deserved. But listen, folks, I was saved from something, but I was also saved to something. Paul, saved from the wrath and punishment that he deserved, but Paul is saved to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Have you ever stopped long enough to think about what has God saved you to? He's, you understand, if you're, if you're born again, you understand what he saved you from. You, you understand that. That's part of your testimony. But just as much as God saved you from punishment, he has saved you to something. And not only that, he has given you a gift, spiritual gift, one, two, maybe more. He's given you that for what? For the building up of the kingdom, the edifying of the church. What has Christ saved you to? I, to I told first service that I'm always going to be honest with you, always. And I'm always going to be forthright with you. And this is a time where I need to be forthright with you. That, that every believer in this room, every person who's come from death and the life, you've been saved to something, a ministry, a work, something that connects to the Great Commission but also builds up this church, edifies this church, helps this church accomplish the mission and goals that, that Christ has given it. Have you, have you ever thought, what is my role? What is, what, is, what, is, what is God asking me to do? What, what should I be doing within the kingdom of God? And the reason I raise that now is because we have ministries right now, vital ministries of this church, where some of our leaders are talking about, are we going to be able to continue to offer this ministry? You know why they're having that conversation? Because we no longer have people willing to serve. So I put in front of you this morning, 
that maybe we need to revisit what has God called me to. He's called me from that. He's called me from a life of sin and brokenness. He's called me from the wrath of, of God that I deserve, but he's called you to something. And let me, let me define that for you. It's not just showing up and being a consumer. You see, God doesn't want you sitting in the stands. He wants you in the game. And he's equipped you to do that. And, and excuses don't work because all that all the Christ has done in your life this this process of sanctification, making you more like Christ. Well, get this. It, it, it's determined upon your willingness to be obedient to what Christ has asked you to do. And that includes serving, involvement. Doesn't necessarily mean here on this campus. It could be on your job site. It could be on that little league baseball team or basketball team or volleyball team that you're leading. Maybe that's your mission field and, and God wants to equip you to be a missionary in that setting. That's what I'm here to do. That's what this church is here to do, to equip you. To be what God has called you to be. You were saved from God's wrath to something. But you're going to have to be along with God a little bit to find out what that is. But here's what it's going to look like as we close. Here's what it's going to look like. First of all, it will be for others. Whatever God is calling you to, it is for others. Now, contrast that with what Paul was doing previous in that false gospel that he was learning. And growing up in. What was, what was his ministry about? It was about him. It, it was about him climbing a ladder. It was about him being applauded. It was about him having prestige and power and control. The way you know a false gospel is the fruit that it produces. Let me say that again. You can always know what kind of gospel you're investing in, whether it be a man's gospel, which is bad news, or their true gospel, which is good news. You can know the difference by the kind of fruit it produces. Does it produce anger, pride, and arrogance, or does it produce humility and love and service to others? You see the difference? Paul's former life was all about himself. After the Damascus Road, Paul gives his life for the cause of the church. So whatever you're doing, whatever God's calling you to, it will be for others. Number two, it will bring God glory. Look at verse 24. And they glorified God because of me. Paul's ministry, Paul's transformation, what Paul ends up doing, what God calls him to and what he fulfills in obedience, what does it end up doing? It ends up bringing more and more glory to God as the church grows into Asia Minor, Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth, Rome, he had plans to go all the way to Spain. The missionary to the Gentiles, God's calling on his life. Is, is God calling missionaries out of our church? I would hope so. What I mean by missionaries is people who are going to sell their earthly goods because God's called them to some specific place on this planet where the gospel's not being proclaimed. Maybe, maybe some of our young people, maybe... That's what God is doing in their life. Maybe we're going to see some people called to pastor a church, be church planters. Maybe, maybe from, from our children's ministry, we're going to see young women say, I am going to this nation and I am going to proclaim the gospel. Wouldn't that be an awesome, beautiful thing? It will be for God's glory. Number three, <laughs> it will be a pleasure, not a burden. Here, you can always... Look, the fruit of man's gospel, the fruit of a false gospel, let me tell you what the fruit is there. An absolute, overwhelming, everyday burden. Because I've got to get up today and I've got to perform for God. 
And at the end of the day, when I peel in my head, I hope, I hope somehow that I've done just enough good today. Oh, man, I think the day, I think this was in the negative category. What kind of pressure life is that? What kind of joy is that? That's no joy at all. It is a burden, not a pleasure. But following Jesus after you come to faith in him and he transforms your life, we don't do service to others to gain God's favors. We do service to others as an act of worship back to the God who called us out of a pit and made us sons and daughters. You get that, right? We, we, we're not, we, we don't have people serving in the children's ministry right now to earn God's favor. They're over there serving in children's ministry right now because of an act of worship back to God. They're over there changing diapers right now as an act of worship. Isn't that amazing? They're over there cleaning up goldfish that's been crushed in the carpet. They're over there vacuuming the carpet right now because they are worshiping God. Our Celebrate Recovery team will be here tomorrow night, just like they're here every night. Every Monday night, they'll be here tomorrow night. And they will work with people who are going through hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And they do it because they love Jesus and they're worshiping him as they serve others. Now, this whole pleasure not a burden, does this mean there'll be times you don't want to quit? Can't tell you that because there's been plenty of times I wanted to quit. But I can't because God called me to this. This is my life. This is what God called me to do and equipped me to do. And he called me to Lumberton. And he called me to High Park, and I will be here until he says different. He's not said anything different. So I'm here. There's some days I get frustrated. There's some days I get fed up. But I can't quit because I won't quit because man did not call me. God called me. And me being honorable to him and worshiping him is more important than any hard thing we're going to deal on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or any other day. We're going we're to put our head down. We're going to deal with it. We're going to work through it. We're going to be together as a church. We're going to honor God, but we are not going to teach a false gospel in this church. We're not going to do it. It's by His grace alone, through faith alone. Finally, it will be something God has gifted you to accomplish. You know, the, the often, often what we hear... Um, in, in, in service of ministry, often what we hear is, well, I can't do that because I, you know, I don't have the skills. Well, let, let's try that out and let's see how that works. If that doesn't work, we'll try something else. But here's the point. God has gifted you. And that gift that he's given you, one, possibly two, maybe more, is for the point of building up, edifying the church, building the kingdom. Are you using it? Have you, have you slowed down long enough to say, Lord, you saved me from this, but you've saved me too I told you before, you know, finance team, personnel team gets together next week, and they say, you know what, we're just not going to pay the pastor anymore. We're going to cut his pay out. Okay, I'll be here next Sunday to preach until God says otherwise. I'll also be looking for a job. That's a whole other thing. But anyway, I'll be here next Sunday, and I'll be available to serve you just like I have because God called me here. It's not because of a paycheck. To wrap it up, let's make sure we understand the difference between the false gospel, man's gospel, and the true gospel. One is very bad news because it's all up to you, and at the end of the day, it will fail you. The good news, the reason it's good news, is that it's no work you can do. And the works that you were expected to do, Jesus has already accomplished on your behalf. When you put your faith in him, you're adopted by God the Father as a son or daughter and accepted by him, loved 
even now, even in your lost state, loved. I don't know what choices you've made in your life. I don't know what paths you've been down, but oftentimes we'll lie to ourselves and tell, us, tell ourselves that we've gone too far, that the things we made, the choices we've made, we've gone too far. God can never love me. God can never accept me. But what's interesting is, is even in that same moment, we default to a false gospel and we try to work and work and work and try to please God, all the while knowing, isn't it crazy? It's a, it's a treadmill we get on that we keep trying to please Him while at the same time knowing we can't. Isn't it time to get off that treadmill? Isn't it time to quit believing that lie? Isn't it time to put your faith in Jesus? Even for those of you who already have, who've, who've been saved from his judgment and wrath, even those who've done, you still kind of revert back to, well, I need to do this so God will love me. That's a lie, folks. That's the false gospel. God already loves you. He's put his, his son died on a cross publicly. What else does God have to do to say to you that he loves you with an eternal love? I think he said all he needs to say. What gospel are you believing? Look at the fruit that it's bearing in your life and you'll know. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram.